0: I'm Maserati E. And I'm Chris Redlitz. Welcome to the Last Mile Radio. We're paving the road to
1: success. No lie. I've been on a mission for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I've been on a mission for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. Hey, paving a road to success. I'm paving a road. my best
0: i'm paving the road
1: to success yowie chris what up what up what up
0: well today i think we have a really extraordinarily inspiring story and with someone who's really done something uh very accomplished and starting that starting that sort of life journey and going through what he did with kind of no hope right but uh the the result, I think, is going to be very surprising for people listening to this, but um, very excited about that. And also, it brings up something that I I wanted to ask you for a while. Talk to me. We've talked a lot about sort of your background, you know, your journey and whatnot, but mm-hmm. there's a point when, and you were incarcerated 17 years old, right? Right. There's a point when you have to stand in court. First, there's a verdict, and then there's a sentencing. When you're standing in front of the judge, And the judge says, you're going to serve X amount of time. What goes through your mind at that point? Because the judge gave you basically a 10-year sentence. Right. What And you're 17. So when you're 17, 10 years seems like a lifetime. Oh, definitely. So what goes through your mind when you're standing there? Because we're going to talk to our guest about this too, who had a much longer sentence. But what what is that like?
1: So Chris, I got to say, man, I had such a distorted belief system that the severity of my crime and the severity of that time didn't even fully like sink in to like later on. So in the moments of me actually getting sentenced, like that actual moment, believe it or not, like I giggled. Like I swear, I get Like I laughed. Like I was so far gone, man. Like I, I laughed. So let me walk you through it. Let me walk you through it, right? So we pull up. We're in there. I'm in shackles. They shackled me to a bench. And I look to the left. I recall seeing my mother, my grandmother, uh, my auntie, and my brother. My brother, Kevin, rest in peace, who dread I got in my head. um, Him, right? And my co-defendants, they, they are shackled next to me, and uh, to the right of me. And I recall, like, it's a bunch of stuff going on. They're using a bunch of jargon and stuff that I don't know. You know what I mean? But the whole time in my mind, I'm more upset. That these dudes told them. I still don't have that sense of accountability that I put myself in this situation. I'm at this time in life. I'm still upset. Like I wouldn't be here if y'all didn't tell. So I'm still super upset, and I'm mugging them. I never forget this. I'm mugging them, and I it gets to the point where they like, "Do you understand the ten years, two strikes, uh, this, that, and the other?" I'm like, "Yes, sir." All that good stuff, and I go from mugging them to looking to the left, and I see my brother, and he looks like he's gonna cry. Mind you, he's a year older than me, so his, his level of understanding was, I guess, a year more advanced, and he understood the severity of what was actually taking place. So he looked like he finna cry. Moms is already crying. Granny already crying. They already in tears. But it looked like he finna cry. And for some reason, just to show how so far gone I was at that time, that just amused me. I'm like, man, I'm up here getting sentenced, and you finna cry? Like, ah, oh, bro, And that just made me laugh. And I recall, like, literally getting sentenced and laughing in the courtroom. After that, um, when I went back, they took me back to the little holding cell and whatnot. And then on the van ride back to Juvenile Hall, I remember everybody was asking, how much time you got? I'm like, I got 10 years. And... I guess at at that time, it wasn't a lot of people getting those kind of sentences in Juvenile Hall. Like everybody was getting, you know, five months. Like if you got two years, that was a long time in Juvenile Hall. Like, damn, he got hit with two years. Like, oh, my God. So me getting that 10, uh, everybody was like, what? Like, oh, like, how did you get all that time, this, that, and the other? But it still didn't hit me. You know what I mean? It still didn't really sink in. Like, bro, you got 10 years with two strikes. And it really wasn't until, I would say, possibly within that first month, I remember sitting in my cell And really just thinking like, wait a minute, if I get one more strike, which is a violent felony, I got a minimum of 25 years to life. I'm never going home. And that's when it finally began to like really, really sink in, because prior to that, I thought I was getting life and I accepted it Um, again, Mm -hmm. having attempted murder. I remember this, right? When I first committed my crime, my first like two weeks um of my incarceration in juvenile hall, I had a, a visit with the lawyer that we ended up uh, buying or whatnot, right? And I remember he was like, man, I'm gonna try to get you five years. I'm like, what the hell? Five years? Like, that's hella time. Like, I'm like, why are we pushing for five years? Why do you want to get me five years? And the way he broke it down, he was like, this charge is 10 to 20. This charge is 10 to 20. This charge is 10 to 20. And it added up to like over a hundred years. And that's when it kind of began to sink in. Like, oh shit, like I I kind of fucked up here. Like I did something kind of big here. You know what I mean? And I was like, wait a minute, when you say 10 to 20, do you mean like a minimum of 10 years? He was like, yes, a minimum of 10 years, all of these charts. So I'm like, yeah, let's push for that five. But as the case progressed and things like that, It was looking like I was going to get life. Like the first deal they threw at me was like 28 to life or whatever. And it was a deal because I had the possibility of parole. So in my mind, I'm like, it's over. It's all bad. So I kind of like embraced that and accepted it and kind of like gave up to an extent. So getting that 10, I still wasn't necessarily out of that mind frame of accepting incarceration and accepting my fate, if we will. So it really just didn't sink in to, like I said, like within that first month, like, damn, like this is serious, but it's not over
0: and your family was there fortunately to support you in that oh no wait how did uh, you know they have to rationalize that as well
1: definitely so did that, that breaks my heart reflecting and 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 knowing you know knowing what i put them through cuz obviously they cared more about me than i did about myself and i know especially for my mother I put her through so much stuff that she didn't deserve, so much stress. And I'm just so remorseful for that. And I swear, just reflecting on me, it really just break my heart. It almost moved me to tears, man. It has in the past for sure. But just knowing how much stress I put them through and how much undeserving, like they didn't deserve it. It wasn't in reflection, in my opinion, to my upbringing within my household. Like I had a good mom that was present who gave me the right morals and standards. I just didn't listen. You know what I mean? I just didn't take heed. So I know for her, she really felt like, where did I go wrong? It felt like she failed. So knowing the pressures that I was putting on her later on down the line, it just really breaks my heart because they, my especially my mom, man, like she's never left my side. Like they, they could send me to ten bucks too. She's gonna be there. You know what I mean? Like no matter what I've done, no matter what I've put her through, she's always been by my side. So. That unwavering support, you know what I mean, was, was was big, but I wasn't I wasn't in a mind frame to really understand that and appreciate that. Right. And, right. and I really took it for granted.
0: Well, I know your mom's really proud of you now. for oh, sure. She's very definitely. proud of you now. Um, so there is, you know, that's the silver lining of this, that she supported you, but she's super proud of you. and And you've got great family support today. Sort of transitioning to our guest. Absolutely. Um, again, I mentioned at the top that, you know, this is a, a very inspirational story, a story arc that unfortunately is is pretty common. Right. The end result is not so common. So we're talking about Jared Naba. Who was sentenced to 162 years. Right. And maybe just give us a little more background uh, about Jared.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So Jared committed his crime very young as well, just like me was 17 years old. And he's actually featured in a documentary, a very, very powerful documentary produced by Scott Budnick. Shout out Scotty B who we've had on the show before as well. Um, So be sure to check out the documentary, They Call Us Monsters. Last time I seen it, it was on Amazon Prime. So be sure to check that out. But he ultimately, like you just said, man, was sentenced to 162 years. And fortunately, he changed his life while he was incarcerated. You know, we big on stories of transformations and he is a epitome of a story of transformation. He altered his life completely uh, 180 degrees, went from that direction going to this direction direction other way around so i think he really epitomizes what it looks like to grow you know what i mean and it's a very powerful story and we're gonna get into what he's currently doing today i don't want to give that up just yet you got to tune in and listen for that because it's very very powerful what he's currently doing today and he got a lot going on so i'm super excited to get into this discussion right here on the last mile radio on sirius xm so stay tuned because when we come back we chopping it up with the one and only jared nava right here Yes, 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 and we are back, we are back. You are tuned in to The Last Mile Radio right here on Sirius XM. It's about to go down. Chris, we got another guest in the house like teeth in your mouth. It's gonna get real. Who we got today, Chris?
0: Today, we have a super interesting story and someone who's done a phenomenal um, sort of transformation. We have Jared Nava with us today on The Last Mile Radio. Welcome, Jared. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, man. I'm excited to get into your story, man. I'm excited to have this discussion, man. So again, welcome to The Last Mile Radio, man. I'm Jules.
0: <laughs> so Jared, it's it's uh, it's always helpful, certainly as we go through the story arc of your life, to understand sort of the background, sort of where this sort of whole journey started. And I know you've told the story before, and we'll, we'll sort of get into the documentary as well that really chronicles your story. But just give us a sense of, you know, where you were living and sort of how this journey started.
2: Yeah, definitely. So I was born in, in Michigan, actually. So I was born in Michigan. Uh, my real biological father didn't want nothing to do with my mom. So she had me at a, at a young age, despite um, all the all the consultation around her, telling her that she should abort me. She, uh, she stood it out and had me at 19. Um, shortly after that, she joined the Navy to kind of sustain and, and build a life for us. So she joined the Navy and moved to Washington. And then after she got done with the boot camp, moved me out there with her. And we're living in Washington where she ultimately met uh, my sisters, all three of my sisters' is, uh, father. And from there, uh, we followed him to Pomona, California. And that's kind of where the whole story began growing up out there. And I think for the early stages of my childhood, I, w- I wouldn't say I, I had it like necessarily terrible or it was um, extremely traumatic, um, outside of the fact that just moving around a lot, kind of having an identity crisis, um, feeling like I didn't really fit in in a lot of different spaces. But, uh, in those young ages, like the biggest thing for me was sports. Like they put me in sports and that's just where I thrived. That's where I thrived. That's where I was the most successful, but I was a lot older than my sisters. So my sisters, like there was a little bit of a disconnect. My sisters are five, and then I uh, five years younger than me, and then I have uh, two sisters who are twins who are seven years younger than me. So I kind of was already like I had to grow up fast. I was kind of put in that role where it's like you're the big brother, you gotta take care of them. And um, that's kind of that's kind of like the fam- the family dynamic. And then uh, my parents being young and trying to kind of figure out and do the best with what they had, they kind of they had their struggles. You know, they had domestic violence, they had uh, you know short tempers, things that they just. You know, they they weren't really taught how to be the best uh, parents and, and doing it young with four kids, I think, was a struggle. And so, like I said, we bounced around. I went to a lot of different elementary schools and went to a lot of different, just just a lot of different schools in general. And then um, ultimately, when I was um, 13, it's kind of like the the moment in my life where in the documentary, They Call Us Monsters, we, we wrote a piece on like the loss of innocence. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like my, my first like real loss of innocence was like witnessing my stepfather trying to take his life. Mm -hmm. Um, There was other things that had happened, like in my childhood, like I had seen somebody get stabbed. I had seen um, shootings take, uh, take place. But when I seen the person that was like, that could do no wrong, my superhero, kind of seeing their kryptonite, it really shattered my, my perspective of what a man was. It really shattered that home base. And it made me feel really isolated. So from there I went outside the house and I, I went to find uh, kind of like my next role model or or the person that I wanted to emulate. And unfortunately I found that in, in games.
1: Man, that's deep. That that is deep right there. And I, I I could I could somewhat relate to that. You know what I mean? Having to grow up very fast. I, I'm eight years older than my little sister. So I definitely can relate to, you know, having to somewhat be the man of the house as a, as a kid, you know what I mean? Our, right? Are feeling like that's what we had to do, be the man of the house and feeling like we had these responsibilities that we had to take, you know what I mean? That was bestowed upon us and the pressures that come with that. So that, that, that's heavy, man. And you know, to, to, to see your pops do that. I, I, I'm just curious. Cause I know that led you to the, to the gangs and stuff like that. Like you just said, but was that, was that influence still there? You know, did that completely sever y'all connection or did he still have that that influence over you? You know what I mean? As far as, you know, that father figure, if we will.
2: I feel like it, it completely severed it because there was mm. never really a conversation about what took place. So I mm. kind of was just left with a lot of questions and like, it was never discussed. It, it almost was treated as if it never happened. So for me, there was just, there was a lot of, of questions unanswered. And there was a lot of respect lost at that time. And then just as a kid, I didn't even understand. I just felt like I had seen my mom leave, like leave us. I had seen, um, I had like experienced that. And then I think my real dad never being involved in my life. Uh, like I came to later, like put words to that, like abandonment issues and things like that. So when, when that happened, it just completely like, like, uh, um, pushed me to put up these walls. So I just put up these walls towards him. And so it just was at that point, it was just like me trying to just look out for my sisters. I felt like I was the only one left there for my sisters.
0: So you joined a gang and you know, that experience escalated, right? You, you were joined when 13 and then you got more and more involved. It led to the, the instant that got you incarcerated. How did that evolution sort of in that gang involvement continue to escalate?
2: Well, I, I didn't even end up actually making decisions and joining the gang until I was like about 16. So um, during that period of time, like I was around all the same people. Like it's just, that was like my circle growing up. And um, so after that, I had experienced that with my my stepdad. Um, I, would, I was working, like I was working a lot. I used to go door to door selling like uh, newspaper subscriptions or I used to sell little coupon books. I used to sell every, like any and everything you could think of. I used to go door to door and sell. And so... That was kind of my escape. So I would do that. And then it got to the point where I was just like, I kind of felt burnt out and I just wanted to be reckless. I wanted to be a kid. I wanted to just not have to worry about anything. So then that's when I joined um, the gang when I was about 16. And at that time, I think I was just filled with so much hatred. And I had experienced a lot of stuff just growing up, like uh, fights. And I just had a lot of anger that I didn't know how to deal with. And I think a lot of it was was fear too. Like I didn't want to be victimized. I've seen a lot of people be victimized where I grew up, and so I seen um, joining this gang as a means or an outlet to let out my anger, to develop a sense of identity, and then to to have purpose. Like I think a lot of times people don't understand. Like a lot of young people join gangs because it provides you with a sense of purpose. Like you you almost it's like almost like an alter ego. You get a new a new nickname you get respect, you get all these things. It's like a warped sense, right? But it provides all these things for you. And as a kid, when you're powerless or you have no control and then you join this and now you have all this control and you, you're given weapons that kind of uh, level off the playing field, even if you're, you're coming across adults, it just it's like empowering in a sense. Definitely warped, 100% warped. But at, at that age, the mindset, like, it, it seems like it's the answer to all your problems.
0: And then it got to the point where you got carried away and and it led to you going to prison. Can you just talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, 100%. So um, I learned quickly that the more violent you are, the more you're, you're feared or respected and the less people mess with you. So um, along with all the things that I was experiencing, I just I I, I unleashed that onto to everybody that I came across. And so really it was just an insecure kid who was just hurting people. Like like they say, like hurt people hurt people, right? Like, the, like yeah. that cliche thing, but it's so real because yeah. everybody I was coming across, I just wanted them to feel my pain. And so ultimately um, I committed uh, four attempts of murders and Yesenia Castro was, was paralyzed as a result of that. And I was arrested a week later. I was tried as an adult. Um, my first um, time ever going to jail I step into um I stepped into the uh, juvenile hall and they're like my first court date. They're like you're facing 100 plus
1: years to life. That is crazy. That's crazy. And ultimately, you were sentenced to 162 years. Yeah, ultimately, I got sentenced to
2: 162 years to life.
1: That's crazy, man. So so let's take let's take it back. Let's take it back. I want to take it back to um to the doc, man. They call us monsters, um. Man, that's such a powerful doc, bro. Such a powerful doc. What What was that like for you, and and how did that impact you? Um, that period of time, honestly, I didn't understand
2: like the documentary as far as the impact it would have. But I just, I'm so grateful for Scott for Scott Bundy, like because what a lot of people don't know, and I haven't haven't shared is prior to even being in the Inside Out Writers class, I was housed. Um, in the shoe basically in juvenile hall, like I was housed indefinitely till I turned eight, till I turned 18, I was transferred to prison and Scott came and talked to me. He's like, is this what you want to do? Like, do you want to just be up here and be isolated from everybody and not program and be fighting or you could come back down into the unit and join my writing class? And I was like, all right, you know, like this is the first time somebody was showing interest and somebody was showing that they cared in a long time. And so I took a shot on it and I joined that writing class and that was the, that was my new escape was writing poetry every weekend, every Saturday. And then when they offered the opportunity to um, participate in the documentary, I jumped on it like, yeah, let's do it. But during that period of time, I was, I was wilding out. Like, like a lot of people don't know, like I was getting high during like the whole first portion of the documentary. I was getting high like every day. Um, I just wasn't taking it serious at all. And then, Scott came and hollered at me again, like, hey, man, like, I offered this opportunity to you. Like, what's going on? Like, get Get it together. together. (laughs) What's what's up? And so I kind of had to, I had to, like, I had to get it together. And and now when I watch the documentary, I could see the change in myself. Like, I can watch myself put on the mask from the opening scene where we're talking, where we're rolling the ball around. Like, I could see myself putting up this mask, like the insecure kid. I could see it. And so it's it's very like eye-opening now because now when I speak to young people, I go in the, like I see through it. Like I'm like, I remember I was you. Like I remember being that kid just hiding from reality and
1: Ooh, yeah, yeah, man. I, I I kid you not, man. That just gave me chills, bro. Cause I just I just recently watched it and I, I had a somewhat similar experience. Now my, my sentencing wasn't as severe, but I did fully believe that I was gonna get life in prison. I did not think that it was no way that I was only going to get sentenced to 10 years, um, which ultimately I got sentenced to. But I thought I was getting life and I, I wasn't able to take it as serious in the times that it was taking place. Either. And now that that's that mask you're referring to. Right. I think that's one of our defense mechanisms of like laughing it off and trying to, you know, mitigate the severity of the situation and watching you, man, it really brought me back to that, to those moments of being sentenced, like, like in, in the film, when you were getting sentenced, uh, I, I'm curious to know, like what was going through your mind in those moments? Cause you was like brushing it off and laughing. And I did something very similar. Like when they was asking me, like, do I understand the severity of my crime and how much time I'm getting and all that? I kind of like shrugged it off and laughed. And I recall looking at my brother, um, who, who was in the court and it looked like he was finna cry and that amused me for some reason. But now, you know, reflecting, I see that that was just like my defense mechanism, you know, to laugh And I was just very immature when it came to my feelings and how I responded to it. So I'm just curious, you know, for you in that moment, receiving such a severe sentence, man, to like brush it off and laugh. Like what was going through your head? Honestly, uh, what they
2: don't capture, too, is when I lost trial, when I actually got the guilty verdict, that's what broke me. Like Mm. that that that's the part that really hit me because the number didn't I didn't I didn't fully grasp a number. I just figured if I lost trial and got life, it was over with. It could have been 10 to life. It could have been a million to life. When I lost trial and they read the guilty verdict, that's when it like really um, broke me. And I remember the sheriff carrying me out the room and I wanted to break down crying. You know, you get that well in in, in your throat and you just, my face got tight. Like I wanted to cry. And I didn't Mm -hmm. even allow myself to feel it in that moment because I was like, oh, I can't cry in front of the police. You know, like these, these false, you know, um, beliefs that I had even as a, as a young kid. So when I went to get sentenced, it was like I was with my co-defendant and I was just continuing to put on this facade. Like I I can't let them see me weak. I gotta be tough. I gotta, I gotta take this time and I gotta take it on the chin and I just gotta eat it. You know, I like I was trying to be somebody I wasn't. I was trying to act like I was this tough guy and I was unfazed. But when I really sat and thought about the time that I got it, it broke my heart because not only the fact that I was never going to go home again, but the fact that I did something that would equate to me getting that much time. Wow.
0: That's crazy. And, and uh, I just wanted to make sure that we give proper, um, proper props to Scott Budnick. Who's been, a guest on TLM radio and um, you know, he's the founder of anti-recidivism coalition also, you know, he'll produce the, this documentary called they uh, call us monsters. Um, And someone who's been super active and he started to do those writing um, workshops inside youth facilities. I think it's 15 years ago. I don't, it's, it's been All a right. while. Right. Um, And he constantly does it. And I think that, I was curious about that because I know when I I walked into prison the first time before we started the last mile, no one knew me in prison. I didn't have any experience in prison. Um, And then people sort of called you accountable. Like you said, Scott said, hey, you got to get it together, man, if you want to continue to be in this program. As a young guy, how did you take that? Because here's someone like Scott or like me holding people accountable. They don't know us from, from Adam, right? How did you take that and did that start your transformation or did it take multiple sort of times for people to say, hey, you got to get it together, Jared? Um, because, again, you you have this mindset, you're going to be in life, you're going to prison for the rest of your life. So who cares? Right. Scott's impact. How did that start that transformation process?
2: Yeah, definitely. Scott, Scott was pivotal and just showing me something different. Like he would come and talk to us. The thing about Scott is he never like came with an iron fist at first. Like he came and he got to know you. He sat down and you would hear like, oh, this is this movie producer. And it's like that doesn't mean nothing to you when you're fighting life. But he didn't lead with that. He would come and be like, look at like I was in Puerto Rico and he'll show his pictures on the laptop. And he just like was opening up our minds to something that we never imagined like was something that Anybody we knew would have ever experienced. So him just kind of building that rapport. And then, like, I remember when I got my GED, like, he came to the graduation in the juvenile hall. Like, he was just very present. Like, he showed us that he cared, and he would come in consistently every week. Hey, man, how you doing? Like, uh, what happened in court? How's this going? How's that going? Like, he just, like, cared. And then at that time, like, you just felt like you were on an island. And when you had anybody coming, like, you like you held on to that to that like that life raft and Scott was like that life raft in the beginning and then um because I feel like somebody like him like showed so much love and care like it it pushed and propelled me on a on a path of looking at two different routes whereas before I was just like man this is it is what it is I gotta like go to prison now and I gotta just fall in line with what prison entails. Like I just, Mm. I'm 18 and I just got to fall in line. Like I had already got exposed to some of that in the County jails in LA County jail at 18. And so going into prison, I was like, okay, it is what it is now. I, I got life. There's certain things expected of me, but in the back of my mind, I always knew like there was somebody who took interest in my life at the worst point in my life at my rock bottom.
1: That's deep, man. The support system Is so vital, man. So so vital, and that 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 brings something up for me, right? When it comes to the support system, I'm curious to hear your take on it, Jared. Um, so for myself, right, I don't I don't give prison the credit. Me personally, I don't give prison the credit. I felt like you know I had to encounter people that I met, unfortunately, within the confines of prisons. But I think those people ultimately. It is what altered the trajectory of my life, right? That got me to wake up and see things. I'm curious to hear your take on that, man. Do you feel like, do you feel like, you know, being incarcerated helped you along the way? Or do you feel like the people you encountered and and why?
2: Definitely the people I encountered while I was incarcerated. Like I met some amazing people who mentored me, even when I was in my, like, from, from the very beginning of my time to the very end, I was surrounded by some very solid people. Who always like kind of challenged me to be better, kind of like seeing something in me that I that I didn't see, and so I don't think it's prison in itself, right? Because prison in itself is just a place. It's like, for example, like right. church. Like church is just a building, right? It's the spirit that makes it powerful, and so for me, it was like the people that that I feel like God was bringing around and bringing into my life that like enabled me to see something different than those four walls.
1: That's super super deep. Now what comes to mind, we're going to get a little cliche, but it's powerful. It's powerful, David. I want to know, man, what would you tell 16-year-old Jared? What would you tell 16-year-old Jared from back in the, they call us monster days, man? Do you feel like it's anything that you could have told yourself back then that could have, you know, prevented you from entering that space in the first place? I think I would have told myself, like, it's okay to be you. Like, it's Mm. okay to be, like, don't be afraid to
2: be the person that you really are. And I think it's not so much just saying that, but it's continuing to be there and to help develop the true identity, the true character that that's what was really needed. So if I would have been able to be there to pour into myself as a young teenager and just show myself that there's nothing wrong with me, that there's only one me, that I'm unique. And that's what everybody, like, I feel like everybody, especially in our culture today, is this comparison. Everybody's comparing themselves next to somebody else. And it's like, you're the only you like, your authentic self, like, will bring people to you. Like, it'll draw people. Like, people will love you for you, but you pretending to be somebody else is going to push people. Like, people are going to run from you because it's not real.
1: It's fake. Ain't, ain't that crazy how when you do step into, you know, when you when you do get comfortable in your own skin, if we will, right, and just be yourself. How how you find out that it's OK, because everybody, like you said, is attracted to you and embraces you and accepts you for that, though. You know what I mean? Because everybody else is so uncomfortable in their own skin and wanting to be somebody else. So when they see somebody that's genuinely them, you know, unapologetically, ain't it crazy how that's what brings the acceptance and that's what have you lit the whole time? though like that's the trip to be.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. Like that's it's, it sucks that it took so long and I and I harmed so many people in the process to learning it. But I'm I'm so grateful that I have that that awareness today.
0: So we're going to get to today also, which is another really interesting twist in your life. But you're serving time, and this documentary comes out. You get more and more sort of um, acknowledgement about your case things are changing in the California laws and there there starts to be this inkling, like I might be able to get out of prison. Can you take us through that process also?
2: Yeah. So the, the biggest change though, like my, my change was when I was 19, I chose to to stop being a gang member and I didn't go to like an SNY Y or a PC yard or anything like that. Not nothing against it, but I, I chose, like I'm not going to run from anything anymore. So I chose to be a Christian and I chose to serve God. Um, and I, and I had an immense sense of peace, even though I had a life sentence. And I never really believed I was ever going to go home. Like, that was never really a thought. Um, I kind of was just involved in everything that they had to offer in the prison. But when my sentence was, um, I was encouraged, like, hey, you should file for commutation of sentence. And I've seen a few guys doing it. And I was like, all right, I'll take a shot at it. Why not? Like, I hadn't had any write-ups. And so I filed for commutation of sentence. And I did it kind of like... I, like I struggled because i I committed my crime. Like I was guilty. I knew I knew what I did was was wrong. So I didn't know, like even when I filed the commutation, I didn't know like how much time to ask for. I was like, I don't know what like I, I didn't feel like like I got asked like people would always ask, like, Do you think your sentence is fair? And I was like, I don't know what equates for like the fact that I took somebody's right to walk. Like I took that away from somebody. so I didn't have a number. i I don't know, like I didn't have any anything that I could come up with. But um, by the grace of God, I, I did get my sentence commuted to tender life. And I think at that time I was just living in a way in which if you were to release me, I, I wasn't gonna fall back in the crime. And I had did a lot of work on myself without really any incentive, without really any goal in mind of like, I'm doing this to go home. Like I just wanted to change. I just wanted to be the best person that I could be in prison. And, and then it, when it came, like it just, man, it was amazing. It just felt like a gift, like a gift of like grace. Like it's not something that I deserved, but I mean, I wasn't going to reject
1: the gift either. So you just brought something up for me right now. You just talked about the work that you put in, you know what I mean? And began to work on yourself without even an incentive, you know what I mean? Other than that growth, of course, you know. So that's something that, that we hear a lot. And especially in the space of criminal justice reform, the work, you know, that justice impacted people put in. What exactly does that look like? You know, what, what What does that process look like when it comes into the work that we put in to grow? Yeah, definitely. So for me, what it looked like was going to education and
2: signing up for every self-help group there was. And I remember in the beginning getting rejected because they're like, man, kid, you got a hundred something years. Like this group is for people who go to board in two years. This group is for people who go to board in four years. And I, they're like, you don't you're not going to board. And I was like, I was just persistent. I just kind of continued. The, the blessing in prison is people see you from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. So they get to see how you handle conflict on the basketball court. They get to see who you're hanging out um, with when you're out in the yard. And so I just started to like surround myself with people who wanted change, people who weren't involved in, in any of the things that, that were negative or that were um, anything that resembled my previous life. Now I was still, give back and, and reach out and, and spend a laugh with cats and be able to like, like I, I wasn't like self-righteous or holier than that. Right. But, um, I put myself in, in, in spaces where I was, I was dedicated to the change. And so like, uh, everything about my, my routine was just like consistent. Like I went to church every Sunday, I went to Bible study every Wednesday, I went to whatever groups I could get into and I completed the groups and I participated in the groups and I was just consistent. Like I didn't miss groups. I, I got into college and I and I took college. And then um, in my cell time, like when I was inside that box, I spent time reading, I spent time writing, I spent time just really doing like a self inventory every night before I went to bed. I apologized to people that I ran into that I knew from juvenile hall or that I knew from the streets that I had caused harm to, I had the opportunity I remember like the, the Holy Spirit was like, Hey, you need to go apologize. And I was like, oh, like wow. <laughs> I'm gonna go, I'm gonna apologize to this grown man that I like I had been something to when we were kids, and I would just hey go go and be like, Hey, can I talk to you for a second? And be like, what's up? And i am like, Man, I like I apologize for you know when I got at you like this or when I did whatever I did in juvenile hall, you know, like I like I started taking accountability. So that's what some of that looked like in my life.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's we, big, man.
2: More with Jared Nava when The Last Mile Radio continues after this. This is The Last Mile Radio with Chris Redlitz and Maserati E. Now, their conversation with Jared Nava continues.
0: We talk a lot about doing the work. You just explain what doing the work is. Right to the T, I love it. <laughs> and and you know, it's uh, it's kind of ironic because you know, so many people, you e, so many people we've had through the last mile program have done the work more than many people on the outside, right? And really had you know have that time for introspection, but you did something about it, right? So doing that work translated to you getting the ability to to you know look at employment and. Now you have a really interesting job. Can you tell us that journey to get to where you are? Because it's almost yeah. like now you're working for the man, right? So, <laughs> so tell us, tell us that journey.
2: Yeah. So when I came home, uh, my goal is to do landscaping. So I chose to move to Sacramento, and I was going to have to take like a, a bus for like two hours to get to the job to do landscaping. And I was talking to like my mentor, like I was talking the sky, and I was talking to a few other people, and they were just like, "Yeah, it kind of doesn't make sense. Like you're going to be on the bus for four hours a day." And so I just kind of kept searching, and um, I had signed up for like different things at ARC, and then um, I met the secretary of the Senate, and um, we had like a great conversation, and I shared my story, she shared her story with me, and then um, I didn't really think nothing of it, and a week later. Uh, she called me. She's like, hey, there's an internship opening up. You should you should interview for it. You should apply and interview for it. I was like, all right, yeah, like, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so I uh, I, I sent in a resume. Uh, this is during COVID still. So like we're doing a Zoom interview, and i am just put on my best dress clothes that I could find from the closet <laughs> in the transitional house. <laughs> and um, I was just very transparent. I was very transparent about my story. I was very transparent about where I had come from. Uh, And who I was today. And basically, like, look, I'm not coming into this space, maybe the most qualified, but I'll work the hardest. And uh, they gave me an opportunity. I started off in Senate District 30, which is like um, South L.A. And I was doing constituent casework at first for the Senate.
1: What is that? What's constituent casework?
2: So people were calling during the time like where they're struggling getting their EDD money. And so I would, uh, my office would, would meet with a liaison from the unemployment office once a week. So we would take case notes for people who weren't able to get their unemployment. And then we would go and talk to the, um, to a woman from the EDD office and be like, Hey, look at this, there's this case and they couldn't get through. And so some people who were legit, we were able to get them their money, which was awesome. Like, it was like, like, it was deep for me because it was like, I was being very empathetic to the people calling. Like some people were like, man, I'm homeless. Like I need mm-hmm. this money. And so I was like, all right, like, let me do whatever I can. Like, I'm going to try and, you know, and then I could tell some people who were lying and trying to run game and who were doing fraud. Right. 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 <laughs> but, but that's what I started off doing. And, um, from there, um, I, I started, uh, I was helping out clear out the attic cause they were tearing down half the Capitol. So I was archiving stuff in the attic from like the 1970s. <laughs> like it was just Damn. all crazy. Like it was just like a variety of things. And then, um, I, I started working for a policy committee so I say all that to say that during the time that they gave me that opportunity, I, it didn't matter if they told me to go get coffee from Starbucks. Like I was doing whatever they said. I was it, w- it was a humbling period of time, too. Like I was riding my bike to, to work sometimes in the rain. Uh, I remember like one specific time my pedal broke. I never I had like my whole life. I never had the <laughs> one pedal, of them days. The, uh... the, the, the pedal broke. I, was like, <laughs> I, was, I didn't even know this, this part could break off. And um, oh, so, but I ended up. I ended up getting hired full-time with the Senate Public Safety Committee, which was really full circle because this is the committee that hears all the legislation that's affected anybody who's entered the criminal justice system. So it was amazing to be able to come full circle and then show them like, this is what somebody who's done the work and who, when you've given them a second chance, like this is what they look like. We're not scary. We're not monsters. We're not to, we're not defined by that that one terrible thing that we've done. We understand that, and and this is this is who we are today. So it's amazing to be able to come full circle and work in this space now.
1: Straight up, man. Straight up. You, you, Jared, you know firsthand one of my mottos, man, breaking the mold, breaking the mold. But I, I think the time has come. So on the last mile radio, man, we give out flowers, my dude. We give out flowers. I think the time has come, it been came, but now I'm it's compelled. I got to give you your flowers, Jared. I got to give flowers, man. The work that you've been doing, man, in your journey, dog. Like, oh, my goodness. I could relate to it firsthand tremendously for sure but it's so inspiring and motivating man and i just gotta salute you again man and just give you your flowers man on your journey man because it's real you know what i mean like i know you personally it's not a game it's not a it's not a gimmick it's real man and it's very powerful for sure so gotta give you your flowers dog thank you i appreciate it
2: i appreciate it a
1: lot one one thing man chris talk about a lot man is go mode. Being in go mode, man, having so much to do and wanting to do so much. Um, when I first got out, breath, like I couldn't say no to nothing. I I I kind of got to the point where I burnt out. But now. I'm back working five jobs, back in go mode, and I figured it out, right? Figured out how to prioritize everything. I know you got a lot going on, man. So can you talk about what you all you have going on currently, and how do you prioritize those things, man? How do you maintain in go mode without burning out feeling like you're burning the candle on both ends?
2: Absolutely. So um, apart from work, um, I'm going to Sac State. I'm pursuing my degree in uh, criminal justice, my bachelor's. I'm in my senior year, so I should walk. This next year, which I'm super excited about. School's felt like it's been hey. just going for forever. <laughs> and um, outside of that, just doing a lot of community work, going into juvenile halls, going into prison. I went into San Quentin last week, and it was dope. Just spending time and and just like testimony. I'm a big believer in testimony. I'm a big believer in just sharing your story and and encouraging others. And because I, there was times in my in my journey where I didn't have hope. And hearing people come back in or share their testimony, like reignited that and sparked that. So apart from that, like um, I'm heavily involved in my church. Um, we do like a men's group just to help men, you know, with with everyday things that that men face. And then uh the way that I manage all that is I, I love what I do. It's not a job, like I I love it, but I still take time. Like I still work out every morning, I still like go play ball, like I still, we still go. ball. Uh, yeah, self care. We go on river uh, rafting trips. You know, like I, I'm not, I'm not sh- stressing over this thing. Like I'm loving this stuff and I'm seeing the fruit of it um, every time I'm involved in it. So it's a passion. I think you have to love what you do. And if you don't love what you do, then you're not doing the right thing.
0: So so true. Uh, that's so true. so true. I know E's living that for sure.
1: Oh yeah, he does <laughs> five things.
0: He does five things. I'm I think TLM's most important, but I'm just biased
1: there. Hey, def- the TLM definitely <laughs> at the top of the list, and, and self care is a must. But that but is. I can relate to that though, because it, it's really not like work. You know, this is so passionate for me, and that's one thing that I learned that I had to do to be able to maintain everything. I had to make sure whatever I'm doing, it actually matters to me. It's actually impactful. So everything that I do is based off of an impact that could be made, and that's what keeps the boat afloat, if we will. Right? That's what keeps that fuel the fire burning, and I'm don't feel like i'm burning out
0: yeah for sure for sure so you have a really unique perspective in our last question that we love to ask all of our guests and we really appreciate you doing this because it really is inspiring um but you know from your perspective there's many things that we would change the criminal justice system but if there's one thing that really sticks out to you what would that be i
2: think the the biggest thing that we can do right now and it's something that's obtainable. It's not far off. I think we need to, to look at um, people who are under the age of 26 who are sentenced to life without the possibility. I think we understand the brain science. I think that all that has been proven. And I'm not saying that we're just letting people go home, but I think after 25 years, if you were under 26 when you committed your crime, at least at least give somebody an opportunity to show if they changed. Because when you send somebody in uh, young like that and say you're never going to get out, it's just the culture that we're creating. And I feel like we've done so much work in California that we can give these individuals an opportunity to present themselves to the board. And the board has been pretty flawless in who they allow home and the success rate of people who've come home. Absolutely. Couldn't
0: agree more. I mean, we've seen so many people. I remember the um, the first time that we uh, started the last mile, we had seven guys. We started just with seven guys in San Quentin. Now it's obviously gone across the country, but Um, six of those were lifers. Five of those are now home, right? And part of that is just the work. We talked again about the work. They did the work, went front of the board, and now they're all doing extraordinarily well. So I absolutely agree with you.
1: I Definitely. You, you know, Chris, speaking speaking of the work, I just want to say this, man, before we get up out of here, speaking of the work, I think that just really goes to show again, you know, people like me and Jared and, and many, uh, many, uh, many more of us. Chris, you know, it's like literally thousands, you know what I mean? But we are not the exception. We are literally the reflection of what happens when, you know, your community invests in you and afforded the opportunity to shine. Like we are the reflection of that. So I think that's one thing that we definitely need to continue to see, you know, keep affording those opportunities to shine.
0: <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> but uh, but again, Jared, really appreciate it. I'm, we're going to be talking to you again. I'm sure I'm going to see you uh, at some point here down the road, uh, but we really appreciate you sharing your story. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, you guys.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Appreciate you again Gotta give you your flowers, man Thank you for your vulnerability You know, thank you for sharing your journey with us, man And again, just gotta give you your flowers One thing I say all the time And I really mean it, man Presence is priceless So thank you so much for being present with us, man For real (laughs) Because it's powerful Chris, it just went down yet again Another powerful discussion That was powerful
0: was powerful and uh jared is he really comes across um obviously he's remorseful but he's he took the steps while he was incarcerated and again quote unquote doing the work we talk a lot about that and he sort of very well defined what that is and what what he did to go down that path of transformation and he's doing it today So, uh, again, another example of someone who was sort of in the depths of despair, in a sense, trying to find himself to someone who's really becoming an example for those people, certainly uh, young people. And he does a lot of speaking around that, but also just, you know, people that he works with today see his work ethic and commitment.
1: Oh, definitely. He, He definitely put in the work. He was able to define it like no other, first and foremost. I think that just goes to show the level of understanding. And one thing that's important about the level of understanding, when you understand, you can execute. And that's what he was able to do. But ultimately, when you understand, you can teach. And that's another thing he's been able to do that's extremely powerful. And why, in my opinion, stories of transformation matter so much. Because it's not like, I was bad, went to prison, now I'm good. It's like, no, it was this? very long and intense journey that takes place to get you from A to Z. So to be able to capture that, that ultimately offers tools for others to take away without having to go through that intense, harsh experience. So that's extremely powerful to me. And I, I'm I'm very grateful, you know what I mean, for, for Jared and all that he's doing. And that's something, as you know, I could definitely relate to. Got pretty similar experiences. Um, Like my, my crime or, or my sentencing of my crime wasn't as severe, should I say, but... I think it's still a lot of similarities there, you know, going down at such an early age at 17. Exactly. um, Doing around the same amount of time I did nine years. He did like eight and a half. You know what I mean? And, And overall, the takeaway from the experience is now fuel us to want to give back and make an impact in communities to the point where people don't have to learn in the ways we did. And I think that is such powerful work.
0: Yeah, and it's, uh you know, we talked about Scott Budnick, who kind of was his mentor and inspiration. Scott, friend of the show, friend of TLM, and, you know, um, close to both of us. But but I also felt that, too, like, you know, when I would go into San Quentin and, and, you know, there was a lot of times where you'd be speaking and you'd be going through this, especially when we were doing our initial programs, and you'd see that light bulb go on, right? Right. You someone to have that, literally have an ep- epiphany that time. And and that, I think, Jared experienced when he was held accountable, and then he realized, hey, somebody cares. Right? right. And one of the most dramatic things for me early on was, you know, one of the guys came up in San Quentin, and this is very early when we were doing um, our entrepreneurship program, and he said, Chris, I know you're trying to get us work and get us jobs when we get out, but just the fact that you care, and you're treating like us like human beings, you give me hope. For real. And that's pretty profound when you're, again, I was not that experienced in, in working in prison. I realized the baseline of just giving someone support is really meaningful.
1: 100%, 100%. The support system is vital. I mean, it's 100% vital when it comes to the growth Especially, especially the growth of people coming from a justice impacted experience, right? That support system is vital. In my opinion, it's not prison. It it it, it is the programs because the programs provide the support system. So what you're doing is stepping into a a a, a place in space of a support system for an individual. And again, that is so vital because in the times when we can't lean on ourselves and times when we can't necessarily empower ourselves, you know, and fuel ourselves to step up in the ways that we do, that's when we have to lean on our support system. And to come from somebody like yourself, to come from somebody like Scott Budnick, people of high stature and high value in our eyes, you know what I mean? That that then transcends to us and it's like, "Wait a minute." If you believe in us, if you believe we can accomplish these things, if you believe I have enough value for you to care, then I have to care. I got to put in this work. I got to push because now I can't let you down because you see something in me that I didn't even see in myself. And once that gets sparked and that fuel and that fire, you know, is set ablaze, it's very difficult to put that one out for sure.
0: Yeah, and it's it's funny because it's mutual. Like I get energy from that. Like people ask, "What's the driver?" The driver is when you see those results. That's what keeps me inspired, right? So it, it's a mutual thing on both sides. Uh, with that said, uh, it's almost time, and we have to we have to sort of, you know, think about our conversation next time. But uh, <laughs> you and I could chat a lot. <laughs> this subject already you know
1: that's what we could do chris for sure you definitely know that for sure but you know what we do at this time chris we gotta get some flowers man i gotta give you your flowers man you always show up <laughs> always show out extremely consistent man so i gotta give you your flowers man all right man i
0: really appreciate it and as always back at you
1: And I appreciate it as well And I'm going to accept my flowers And speaking of flowers I got to give you your flowers You who tuned in with us Thank you so much Y'all know I say it all the time Presence is priceless So thank you so much For being present with us Again, this is a journey And we are so grateful To have you a part of this And we would love to hear from you We would love to hear from you So be sure to tap in Let us know what you like Let us know what you don't like Let us know what you want to hear us talk about Get involved And be sure to tap in At thelastmileradio.org
0: and if you want to hear this show or any show, anytime, you can download the Sirius XM app.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm Maserati E.
0: And I'm Chris Redlitz.
1: And this is The Last Mile Radio
0: on Sirius XM. No lie. Hey.
1: I've been on a journey for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I've been on a journey for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I'm paving the road to success. Hey. I'm paving the road to the best way, I'm paving the road to success, ayy, I'm paving the road to the best way, no lie, to the best way, to increase the success rate, rate. define odds against us even when it's unexpected, changing the world by changing the way we view the world, it's all perspective,